0: I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be always, not just and to be so always, not just when I am with you. my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. how I wish I could be with you now, and change my tone, <laughs> because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born as the result of human effort, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. I am taking these things figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem, because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, "Be, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born by human effort persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The the kids are invited to kids' church with... Kelly, is that right? Do you want to see how long before they notice you're not down there, Kelly? (laughs) Lord of the flies. Um, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his very life for our sins, that he might snatch us out of the grasp of the present evil, thus acting in accordance with the intention of God our Father. Amen. So, Paul starts in his sort of thesis statement for what the book of Galatians is going to be about. We've been reading it at the start of the service each week as a helpful reminder to be what is God doing through Jesus Christ? He's offering us this grace and peace from the Father, and it's this way in which he is giving up his life for our sins. And, and one of the, the things that we've been trying to, to capture in this sermon series is Paul is debating and talking to someone, and that debate is between him and the teachers. Most often, Paul will talk about Christ giving himself up for our sin. And this is this cosmic power which distorts. But as we'll go through the sermon today, this is another case where he might be using the teacher's language, is that they're being rescued from their individual wrongs, which is also true. But, But there's this idea in which the second half of that statement, that he might grab us out of the grasp of the present evil age. That Christ, um, in in Galatians, Paul is talking about this apocalypse of, of new creation that happens. At the end of the book of Galatians, he's going to say it is new creation that matters the most. That he's been sort of building into this this book, this argument about how God is coming into this age, which is distorted and pulling people away from God and their own sinfulness and their own actions and their own destructions and their own idolatries and their own grasping to make the world what they want it to make. And what God is doing through Jesus Christ and the gift of his Spirit in renewing us is setting us free from this age. And so that's where um, the last, we'll come back to this passage as we sort of work through the scripture. But it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is Christ who has come to set us free. And in Paul's mind, that's freedom from this age. As we look to the new age, which is um, uh, overlapping with this one, I will We'll go to everybody's favorite um, image of this story as I talk about it, is that there is this old age, this present evil age, which is sort of conquered by slavery, sin, and death. And through the adoption of Christ through his act on the cross and through the spirit, we're brought into this new timeline. If you think about these top and bottom lines as timelines, in this act of rescue and his liberation, and we're brought into this new timeline in which we live now with life eternally, Forgiveness, freedom, new creation through this adoption that happens to the Spirit that calls in us that we cry out, Abba, Father. This is what the Spirit did in the passage from last week, that we move into Christ's faithfulness. One of the things that I've been trying to, um, as we hear from Paul, um, as we hear this uh, message that he has for us, is I've been trying to to take... um, so There's a theologian I like, Karl Barth, who wrote a, a commentary on the Romans, on the book of Romans in 1918, and he said, you know, we can study a bunch about what Paul was saying to the Romans, but for the sake of this commentary, he said, I want to talk about what Paul might be saying to us today. And so for our sake, it's been, it's been trying to get to this message of what Paul said in his context and then what that might be saying to us today. And one of the things that that I've been trying to say, we've talked about um, how many of us have, and many of us, when I always say, if you're new, us, we, things we do, I always mean me. Um, I'm hoping that I'm not the only one making these errors. If I am, uh, pray for your pastor. but I think when I use that language, I'm, I'm saying that we have this common distortion in ourselves. But, but one of the things that happened with the book of Galatians was it was used beautifully in this Reformation time in the 1600s to argue for people who were anxious about whether they were saved— Luther, if you're familiar with this time, Martin Luther is one who comes to this book, and he finds in it this radical kernel that says that we are not saved by works alone, but we are saved by faith in Christ, and that sets us free from the anxiety of this age. It's a beautiful message, and it is a true message from the book of Galatians, but it's not today I find many of us walking around anxiously if we've done enough for our salvation, or to the extent to which I do find this... um, Walking around anxiously, it's, am I trusting my faith enough? We're missing Luther's point in that, too, is, it's that, is that is my faith, is my church, is my actions with the Spirit, is this community, is this? It's, it, it, that message in, in Luther's time that was meant to free people from anxiety, we've made our own anxiousness of. In two ways, I think the Galatians speaks to that freedom, too. Is, as we talked about in um uh earlier is this faithfulness of Christ rather than faith in Christ in chapter 2. And I've mentioned, first off, the King James and its wisdom, or whatever you want to say it was, um, translated it faith of Christ. So this is not a New English translation I'm arguing for. And if you buy any new English Bible from the last... Um, uh, 10 years, it'll be footnoted for that, that it could be translated not just faith in Christ, but could be trans of Christ or faithfulness of Christ. The reason why I'm re-explaining this and it's very nerdy is because it puts the impetus on faith on what God has done, that we slot into the faithfulness that Christ has. It's not us taking our efforts to apply it to our own faith to save ourselves but it's us finding that what God has done in Jesus Christ has so apocalypsed or invaded or been sent into the world that the best we do and in, in the, in the way in which we move in that is that we get saved into that. It is us finding it. And this is why in the passage from last week, it's the spirit that invades our hearts and calls us, and we call out Abba, Father, is that we are moving into his place. And so Paul's impetus in this letter is, and we've talked about Paul's Evangelion, his gospel is what he's trying to clarify in this letter, is solely focused on the work that God is doing. For these first, it'll change. um, Paul has an idea of what the spirit-filled Christian looks like that we'll get to next week. But for the most part, what he's saying to them is, quit thinking it's about you and what you're doing and trust in what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so going back to last week, which... uh, For those of you who don't remember, I missed two weeks in a row. And I still feel shame about that. I know none of you care. Um, uh, But I missed two weeks in a row, and that was hard for me. And so I had to combine two portions of Galatians. So last week I joked with Kelly, there was two good sermons there. Should have been one, uh, but I had to combine the two teachings, and so one got shorted. But this teaching from last week, which I think is important to keep in mind, is that but now that you know God or are rather being known by god is this, is this slight correction that paul does there is one that i think sets us free am i working hard enough to know god is god knowing me and is the pattern by which he knows me the one in which i'm received into christ you talked about baptism in this passage. One of the things I missed from last week was it's also an interlay over for Exodus too. And, and we see it again in the um, Sarah and, and Hagar passage later here is that, is that Paul's uh, image here overlays with the Old Testament so well is that there are people who are in slavery and they are being rescued into freedom and into life. And so last week there was this, uh, at the beginning of four, um, is so when we were under age, we are under slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had gone come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you were a child, God has made you an heir. That this, this notion here that I, I meant to talk about last week, but in the combining of two sermons, you lose something, is, is, is a replay of the Exodus, is, is that there was a slavery to Pharaoh in which the people had existed in, and, and the greater slavery that God enacted there that he's going to free all people from is the slavery to sin and death. And this is what dominates the present evil age. I think sometimes when people hear that phrase, they're like, yes... Uh, I've seen ads during NFL games, and I think we live in a present evil age, which you couldn't pick better evidence for that argument. But, But this present evil age for Paul isn't just based on the moral categories in which we see decay in society. It's actually based on that this age is always bound to a slavery of sin, and this age is always bound to a slavery of death. And we, we strive to free ourselves from that and work from that in all sorts of ways. But the freedom that comes from that only comes through what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's, that's sort of the point in which Paul is getting to. Um, and so we've been working through this um, book, trying to hear that message of what the Spirit is doing and sort of calling into us into this invasion in the world. Um, there's a commentator who I've been reading and the Galatians is one of the more contested books of the New Testament based on the level at which you're going to read it. And I've been listening to both sides or five sides or ten, who knows. Um, but my we I don't think I've been faithful to one interpretive strategy through leading us through the book, but that's partially because who am I to know? Um, my Greek is almost non-existent today, and... Um, I have not studied this book solely or written a dissertation. So I listened to them all, and what comes out is some condensation of that. But one of the, the more famous commentators, who's the quote on the back of the bulletin, and we'll get to that later, but he he implies that the sentness of the Spirit, the sentness of Jesus, the sentness that we hear in the New Testament is a sentness that implies an invasion into this space to bring back captives and to bring to freedom. And for me, I had always thought like, yeah, God had to send these things. It makes sense. But if you hear in that that there's this choice to send into territory that is held captive by other forces, you can, and, and we heard it in that beginning of 4, the elemental spiritual forces of the cosmos which are binding us, that God sends isn't just this like nice to have a dove today, but as an intention to reclaim this world back for himself to make it into new creation. And so as that spirit is sent into us and into our hearts, it also is striving for that. And so uh, Paul's language for what this is, is now that faith has come, now that faith has come to this place. Um, and it is the faithfulness and faith of Jesus Christ. And as I said, I'm as I talked about the commentators, faith in Jesus Christ is still an important thing to remember. I am uh, if you're hearing me say that there's no room for us to talk about our faith in Christ, there's plenty of other instances in the Bible where we're going to be confronted with how we move into this realm. But what Paul, I think, is correcting here is the impetus to think that it's us, that, that we are the ones really saving ourselves by our faith. It's, it's, when you get down to it, sometimes when I've talked about my faith, it's that my faith is trusting in my faith. And so we're faithing our faith, or we're faithing our relationship to the Bible rather than faithing to Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so I think that's a helpful thing for us to keep in mind. All this to say, this is the portion of Galatians I was least looking forward to to preaching, for. so hence the long introduction. Um, What happens in the the next section is this... um, uh, Paul has been uh, arguing, again, with the teachers and with the Galatians, and he's got this interesting way, if you really follow his intros, he's, he's got, who's bewitched you? How are you so lost? Uh, how do I even know you? And then he comes back with, like, I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Um, the person who read this aloud, which is how the Galatians would have heard it to the, the Galatian congregation, would have had a, a, a tough chore of being like, you're so lost, but now, brothers and sisters, we are here uh, a challenge to read that out loud. But here he comes back to this personal story. And this is one of these, um, what he comes to here is something we don't have all the details of. He comes back, uh, uh, it's it helpful to think when we read Paul's letters, we're often reading other people's mail, but only one side of that exchange. And so what he writes here is like, when I came to you, you did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel, as if I were Christ himself. Paul, as we've put together Galatians and you can put together Acts and stuff like that, seems to have ended up in Galatia through an illness stuck there. And what happens is he is being received by this congregation, and he sees, and he's praising them for the fact that they were able to see through his physical weakness um, and uh, bring about, uh, this is my kid, I'm like, this is Prairie, come on, hold it together. Um, the, uh, um, what he's reminding them of is that when they received him, they received him as one who was weak, Now, one of the things I mentioned at the beginning of our series with with Paul here is Paul, as my New Testament professor put it, and she is one who has loved Paul deeply, is kind of a loser. Like He's always on the downside of these debates. So when he talks to the Corinthians, he'll say, I wasn't strong-worded, I wasn't this, I was kind of weak and timid. But what Paul trusts in is that he has received a message, as he says in Galatians, that is beyond him. It's not a message he came up with, but that one has come from God. And so Paul here, and he talks about this illness in other letters, which we don't know what it was, although there is some way in which you can apply that uh, it's eyes from other instances, but also here, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. It might have been a problem of sight. Uh, one of the letters he signs, I'm signing with my, old hand, uh, my own hand in big letters, um, it might have been that he has an eye problem. And an eye problem in the ancient world um, might have looked more like painful than like, well, he needs glasses. Um, it might have been a mark on his face. And to say that the Galatians were able to look by um, the fact that he had a distortion. Uh, I mean, I don't like uh, over-exaggerating things, but pink eye or, or pus or something like that from, from the face is that like, they were able to see beyond that and hear the message and not only just welcome him as um, a messenger, but as an angel of God or as Christ himself. And to go back in Galatians, he says, it is not um, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul has really found himself bound to this faithfulness of Christ, of who Christ is. And so much so that, as several people um, pointed out this week, is that this is an instance in which um, the gospel says that God uses the weak things to shame the strong. That in, in, in Paul's weakness here, they're able to see God magnified. And this, I think, is hard for us in our world because there's a lot of... Um, Uh, in the church world at least, uh, my wheelhouse, but I think in other spaces, it's the bigger and stronger we need to proclaim so that people can trust it. Whereas what God did in that first century was took the weak and the shameful to proclaim it so that you would know it was from God. If you could build a production, if you could be Caesar, if you could print money with your name on it that says, you know, um, uh, uh, Caesar is Lord, That would be one way to say, trust in me. But if you pick a guy who needs to be rescued on the road in Galatia to proclaim Christ is Lord, if it's actually working, it must be something other than what humans can do, it must be something that God is doing. This is helpful, I think, for us as we think and converse with our friends about Jesus or our neighbors or our coworkers. to remember it is not our ability to win arguments. It is not our ability to shame. It is not our ability to proclaim and make bigger, but it is our ability and our weakness to proclaim. I'm, for the second time in my life, reading The Brothers Karamazov, um, and if you're familiar with the story, there's a scene in which the it's been, there's no spoiler alert. It's been out for like 400 years, so no, not that long. But um, there's the story of the Grand Inquisitor, and it tells the story of that Jesus comes back to earth. And what happens when Jesus comes back to earth, uh, the Inquisition is going on, and they arrest Jesus and bring him into the Grand Inquisitor. Um, and among the Grand Inquisitor, the, he meets with Jesus alone, and what he says is that you have judged humanity too strong. Um, you have judged humanity to, to be able to, to live by the... the Word of God, or you judged humanity to live on the word of God, but not by bread alone. But that was a huge mistake. And so we, the church, have been going about correcting your errors um, by making sure that people are fed, that making sure that people are doing this. And and, and he says that, you know, you, you didn't understand what humans needed. He, this is his accusation of Christ. And what Christ does, if you, if you know this scene, is when he arises and gives the grand inquisitor a kiss and then leaves the, the cell. Um, and this is this argument that I think we have, is that there's this notion in which we want to defend and rise in that place. And what Christ does is goes to that one and offers a kiss. It's great because the parable goes on, and the, the younger, the older son is tearing this parable who's an atheist, uh, uh, an incredible kind of atheist. Not uh, uh, One of my favorite theologians says, perhaps one of the greatest sins of the church is that we don't create interesting atheists anymore. Um, the, Ivan in the Brothers Karamazov is an, uh, an interesting atheist, but the son, who he, the brother who he's talking to is a novice. Uh, he's training to be a monk, and he says, so what do you say to all this? And the and Aloysia, the monk, gets up and kisses him and, and leaves, and he goes, Plagiarist! Plagiarist! You stole that from my story. It's, uh, it's a great scene. But but to have this weakness in ourselves and and um, to be able to trust that to proclaim. He continues, those people are zealous to win you over but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good and it and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, from again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and exchange my tone because I am perplexed by you. Um, there's two things to note in this passage. First is Paul, because he used zealous earlier, he was zealous for the law. And the Old Testament's references to, to zealotry are not particularly positive. They normally involve somebody murder. Um, and some of these times rabbis will remend them, Remind these people as zealous, as positive heroes. And some of the time, rabbis will remember these people as negative heroes. But what Paul seems to apply is that zealotry is always sort of bent towards destruction. Um, He says zealotry is fine, um, what does he say, provided the purpose is good. Uh, Extremism, radicalism, and this is, I'm speaking in the church, but you can apply it to the world too often loses sights of other people and just turns them into obstacles in the way. And this, um, Paul's dealing with the divisive church. And I was thinking about, like, how does this divide show up in the church? And I was like, for all churches, I know uh, I like pastors more than any person should. But, like, for me, it's like I wouldn't even put them in a school of thought, the people who do this today, as much as that they seek to divide. They seek to tear apart. They seek to make antagonism. And and last week, Paul said there is no Greek or Jew, slave or free, uh, slave or... No, I can't get it right. Um, But that we are all being made one in Christ Jesus. And what he is saying is that the ways, male and female, that those things antagonized us in the past are disarmed in Christ. And what the people, the teachers that Paul is debating here are doing from the outside, is trying to set people up to antagonize against one another. They want them zealous after them, but more importantly, they want them zealot because that's where we um, begin to lose sight of what other people are. Zealotry, as we see it in the world, is always this way of sort of spinning things um, into destructiveness. Um, and I think trying to think of a way to say this well, but um, we witness it in a lot of ways, I think, around politics. I think we witness it in a lot of ways in purity in the church. I think that's—maybe we'll pick on that one today. Purity in the church is that people just get zealous about how could you do X, uh, whether it's listen to uh, rap music or or enjoy a beer but not to the point of excess or— Uh, not have your quiet time first thing in the morning, but after you have a cup of coffee. Whatever it is, um, zealotry in the church seems to show up in that purity way, and that's where we're tearing each other down, not towards any human effort, or towards our own human effort. And and what we see in those people, if you've hung around them long enough, is they really do, uh, Paul is naming something here, they want you zealous after them. They want you to follow them in their zealotry towards these patterns. And it's a destructive thing for the church. It's something we need to be rescued from. The second thing is, is that uh, Paul here makes himself a mother in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed among you. Paul is one who aches for his churches like a mother. Now, Emily just gave birth on the 26th. Uh, so I hope some woman in Galatian was there when the guy read this, and he was like, he doesn't know anything about pains and Um, child, but Paul's ache is for this congregation to be formed into who Christ is, that they are almost being brought backwards. They're almost being brought back into the womb by their immaturity in this. He's wanting Christ to be formed in them so that Christ can be formed in the world, and that pains and anguishes him. There's something I like here about that we received the gospel too. Somebody else so told the gospel to us in the hopes that Christ might be formed in our midst. Moving to the next section. Sorry, I spent more time on this first part than I thought it would. Uh, Paul switching voice again. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So come here, brothers and sisters. Tell me now. Uh, do you really want what the law says? Paul, Paul sort of comes back here on the attack, and this is sort of his last um, argument. The uh, five two through 5, uh, before he gets to how to live the Christian life, he sort of ends with a warning, and then he gets into this Christian life thing and concludes the letter. This is his last sort of pinnacle argument here. And what he's saying here is, do you really know what's contained within the law? Paul is using law both as... Um, a stand-in for the 608 commands that make up the Old Testament, but he's also using it for the whole thing, the Torah, the stories that make it up. What's interesting about Paul, um, Marcion, if you're familiar with the Christian her- uh, heresy Marcionatism, uh, which comes from 200-300, um, is this rejection of the Old Testament. He liked the book of Galatians, but what is funny, uh, Marcion wanted to Throw off the whole Old Testament. If you hear people say that I really don't like the God of the Old Testament, but I really love the God of the New Testament, they're practicing the ancient Christian heresy of Marcionism in our world. Um, they're, they're, they're saying that there are two gods, and this is what Marcion and I tried. It's, we never find new and interesting ways to sin. We just replay the ones from the past. Um, that's that heresy playing out again in this world. But what Paul does is he argues from the promise of the Old Testament. He argues from the point of what these scriptures were trying to point out. He doesn't say, look, you guys, you you teachers, and this is where an instance where we probably can be assured that the teachers are using Sarah and Hagar and Sinai and Jerusalem, these arguments, because Paul doesn't really use them anywhere else. So he's responding to their use of scripture. Instead of Paul saying, don't you know that Jesus made it so we didn't have to live with these things? Paul says, let me tell you what those things are really pointing to. We still live in connection to the God of the Old Testament and to those passages and those scriptures. We cannot write that off. And that's Paul's way of reading this, is he wants us to remember that. For Abraham had two sons, and he's already used Abraham to suggest that Abraham believed God long before the law came. And actually, it's a separate scene from even and crucif- uh, Circumcision in the Old Testament, that he, Abraham was one who was credited to him as righteousness before he had any ways or means of responding to God. Uh, there was no law, there was no circumcision, there was nothing this. And so he's using that image of Abraham as a way of living faith today in today's world, is that we are being credited to not through our actions or keeping of the law, we're becoming seeds and heirs of Abraham because Abraham did it without uh, works yet. He was still doing it under his own—he was still doing it, uh, trusting into God. And when we went through that passage, it's actually—Abraham um, is, like, giving in more than he's faith—trusting his faith in that. Abraham is accepting what God has proclaimed. And uh, there's pistis, the Greek word for faith. Um, oftentimes, I'll try to describe it as believing into. Uh, Abraham believed into what God was saying, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, so he's already used Abraham, but he had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. This story back in Genesis, is the story of Sarah and Hagar, and what happens is, is they, Abraham is promised um, a lineage uh, that he will have kids that will um, populate the whole earth, and Abraham and Sarah are very old. And so Sarah and Abraham begin to say, what if we take care of this ourselves and you sleep with my uh, handmaid and my, con- uh, my servant girl, my slave? And so Abraham says, okay, yeah, if God wants this to happen, why wait around for God to do this? We can do it ourselves, which is, we talk about how we do that all over again in our lives. But uh, So they make a plan to secure this future themselves. And what happens is they have a son named Ishmael. And Jews have always, or at this time, regarded Uh, Gentiles as descendants of Ishmael, and Jews as descendants of Isaac. And Paul's going to flip that a little bit here, because what he's going to say is that actually the people born of the free person are born of promise, not of human effort, not of something they can do themselves. They're ones born because of the creative action of God. There's a phrase I like called, um, it's eccentric, or you could put uh, EX-centric, outside of ourselves. What Paul is talking about is an act that doesn't happen on the plane of human existence, the way things go, business as usual, but God's sort of invasion or effort into God's creation um, being broken open because God is doing something not according to the regular pattern. God is doing something. And so what Paul is saying, uh, first he's just introducing the scene, we'll get to what he's saying next. This is just for uh, simplicity's sake, the contrast between uh, Hagar and Sarah in Galatians: uh, slave, free, according to the flesh, through the promise. And then, as he goes on, he's going to compare the Hagar to the Hagar's son to the present Jerusalem, um, to the flesh, and to those who are persecutors, and they will not inherit. Uh, and then Sarah's son Ishmael is going to be to the Jerusalem above to the spirit instead of the flesh, persecuted, and will inherit what God has done. If you look at um, this, uh, the according to the flesh um, thing is, is just important to remember, is that the teachers that Paul is debating are arguing for circumcision. So when he says this is happening according to the flesh, he's saying the teachers are arguing for this according to the flesh. Um, and so he's criticizing things that we do according to the flesh. The next section, um, to, these things are not to be taken; fi- uh, these things are be taken figuratively. What Paul is doing is reading the past in a way that expands its meaning into the present. The woman represent two covenants, or as he's going to get to two churches: the Jerusalem church and the, the Jerusalem that is above. Uh, the woman represent two covenants. One covenant is Sinai and Bar- and bears children who are slaves. This is Hagar, and Hagar stands for Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. But Paul here is arguing if you trace Jerusalem through the book of Galatians, Jerusalem is where the teachers came from that are causing the problem. So when he says these are people of human effort, these are people of human flesh, these are people who think it's through the works of law, our ability to practice, and it's not clear that the teachers are even holding the whole law. he puts that out there earlier, in that like they're kind of giving you half of it anyways, and you're you're going to end up in the cursed state that the Israelite end in. They correspond to the present Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Paul is contrasting this these teachers with this Jerusalem that exists now and 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 the rabbis had this notion that the Jerusalem that exists now is always under siege, always under attack, always in threat. That someday God was going to bring a new Jerusalem about, and that Jerusalem would be um, in diamonds, is one of the things. This is what is picked up, perhaps, in the book of Revelation, that it will have streets of gold. Or what Shelley read for us is that, is that he, I saw a new, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And as God's quelling place, as we end the sermon, and his new creation is here among his people, um, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order, the present evil age has passed away. And so Paul is arguing that his churches are this one from above. For it is written, he takes from Isaiah, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than one who has a husband. This, I think, is a beautiful way, this last line, there's much more we could say about this last line, is husband in this passage is security on earth. It's action on earth. And what he's saying is, the woman who is desolate is worth more than one who has a deposit on earth. She is one who receives from God. And as Paul is saying that the new people are not one board of Abraham's seed, literally, But born of that adoption of the flesh, or of the spirit upon ourselves, it's no longer us. But God is making uh, Paul's reading as in an interesting way to say how God is making this new people. Now, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are you brothers and sisters? Are like Isaac, uh, are children of the promise? Uh, At the time, the son born accepting the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit is the same now. So what he's saying is that Isaac is who we are, these ones who have trusted and been brought in through the promise, not through our flesh or the keeping of the law. And he says that they fought, which is true from the book of Genesis. And Sarah says, well, it's time to send, um, you need to send Ishmael out into the world. Um, We don't know exactly what happened. It seemed like he was making fun of him, and rabbis have read all sorts of interesting stuff into that passage. But what Paul does is he then flips this to say, but what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. What he's telling them now is it is time to cast out those who are dividing your community. It is time to cast out those who want you to move to the sun of slavery, of human effort, and of human life. It is time, reading, and this is, Remarkable way to read the scene in Genesis. It's, at the end of it, he doesn't just get the promise in this thing. He also gets to say, and what does it say? You kick out the one who's trying to bind you in these ways. Um, and, and I don't think our church has that, but helpfully I think we can think of kicking out the one in our souls who wants to bind us in that way. When you think you're doing it by human effort, uh, it's time to kick out that one. For it is freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm and do not yourselves... Be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Um, There's a quote on the back of the bulletin we won't get to today about what freedom means. Uh, I'll just read the last part of it. Um, Paul uses the noun freedom to characterize a space, the realm that is the result of God's action in Christ. Um, The realm from which is God's action in Christ. God has created this realm by delivering human beings from slavery under the power of specific slave masters. The law's curse sin, the law itself, the elements of the cosmos, and as Paul will say, the impulsive desire of the flesh in 5.13 to 24. That we have continually bound ourselves in slavery, and what Christ is doing is freedom is setting up a realm that is the church that is meant to be free. To end, there's one of the things um, I meant to do more application today and then I just failed hard. Um, First, freedom, we have a, in America we talk about freedom a lot. Most often our freedom means freedom from. Um, I am free from the constraints of my parents or from the government or something like that. Um, Paul would say we have freedom from the present evil age, but there's also a freedom for that we often forget. So there's freedom from and there's freedom for. How do we move in freedom for the spirit and the good things which God has prepared from us. Um, That we have this freedom and responsibility. And so we talk about uh, rights a lot in society today, but we don't talk about responsibilities to each other and to one enough. Um, And for Paul, these things are not separated. Freedom from things that distort us is also freedom for Christ and Jesus. We need to remember that. The one thing that um, we'll end with is this idea we have the scoliosis of our souls this is an ancient way of thinking about the Christian, uh, which is distorted by sin. We bend ourselves in certain ways. Uh, and freedom, what Paul is arguing here is a way in which we straighten ourselves up. Our world is one um, so bound in anxiety and uh, destructive patterns in this and so one of the phrases we use a lot here at Defiance Church is how do we become a non-anxious presence in the world how do we become those not bound in anxiety there are at least four people today or four people this week who told me about the rival dresses between two different politicians um do I need to name them people get what I'm talking about they have these dresses yes okay um That's living in an anxious space. When we begin conversations with, did you hear what the CDC said? Did you hear the new demands that are being placed upon us? We join the anxiety of our age. It's weird in this valley where are you sending your kids to school? becomes a prompt by which people grow in anxiety as if they're going to be judged for one choice or the other. It's like, hey, we're all just trying to survive here. Um, We make these own slaveries for ourselves. We participate in them. We compete around them. And what Paul is arguing for us is that we would be free not trying to put back on yokes of slavery, but free. And I hope my prayer for our community, myself included, is that we can go in the world as people not bound to this anxiety-producing age we live in, but freed from that, so that we may pray for one another, we may be for one another, we may witness to the realm that God is setting things right in Jesus Christ, not through my own actions, but through the action of sending his Son and his Spirit into the world so that we may cry out, Abba, Father, and be part of the new creation that God is undertaking. Let us pray. God, you have called us into the life of your Son. And through that, we are able to let go of so much what antagonizes us in this world. We are blessed in so many ways to be a part of a church, and we are not experiencing division or pulling apart or interlopers coming and trying to make us zealous in ways that tear us down. But God, we still participate in a world, in workplaces and schools and friendship circles in which we are bound to slavery, to competition, to being better than, to trying to perform, to making ourselves better. May we receive the gift of your Spirit and the faithfulness of Christ that ends that performance and ends that anxiety, so that we may be agents of your healing love, of your goodness, of your truth, of your invasion into this world to set up new creation we ask this all in the name of the father and the son